It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Every year it seems like more and more wildland fires are afflicting our nation, particularly out west. They're more frequent, larger in scale, and occur during a longer season. The reasons for this are complex and involve both human development and climate change. Somebody has to go out and fight these fires in order to protect life and property. Kate Dargan Marquis has been doing this hot, tired, dirty, and dangerous work for decades, and she is our guest today on The Adrenaline Zone. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Duncan. Slow-steeped, ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew should be at the top of any adrenaline seekers checklist. We caught up with Kate at home early in the 2022 fire season. Kate, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. You know, you've made a career out of the complex and dangerous business of wildland firefighting, from being on the front lines to managing entire efforts to being an advocate for responsible use of firefighting as a tool. So let's start by baselining our listeners on the firefighters themselves. Where do most of these people come from and how are they trained? I'm going to start off by saying there's a couple of different buckets of the fire service world that go to wildland fires. So there are kind of what we call the the essential wildland firefighters. These are people like the hotshot crews or the smoke jumpers that jump out of airplanes or the folks that spend a month in the mountains really doing wildland firefighting. And you see those folks in the news quite a bit. But that's what, you know, think of that in the remote wilderness areas of the country. Then there are folks like Cal Fire firefighters, which I was one of. And we work on primarily on fire engines. We work all over the state in California. Our fire stations might be in suburban and urban environments as well as wildland environments. So it's kind of a hybrid mix. And then there are, you know, tens of thousands of local city fire district firefighters that go to wildland fires under mutual aid. And so there's a little bit of differentiation between all those. They're all wildland firefighters when they respond to a wildfire and fight that type of fire, but they come from different environments. If you're a full-time like federal U.S. Forest Service wildland firefighter, that's all you do. You are trained in that. That is your primary mission. If you're a suburban firefighter, you're trained in a lot of things. One day it's a hazardous material, the next day it's a heart attack, and the third day you're going to a wildland fire uh, north of Auburn. So it sounds like there's sort of a big collection of people who could converge on a fire. You've got the the real pros are out there all the time. You've got the the hired guns. You, you know, some are contractors, I would imagine. Some are are in the service of, we've talked about suburban firefighters. So the standards are pretty much the same. If you're going to go back into the back country and fight a fire, you got to have this training. Yes. And I want to say that, you know, there's different dangerous environments on wildfires all the time. But you know, to give a nod to those firefighters where it's not their full-time mission, they are often responding to those conflagration-type fires that are intermixed with homes and evacuation and life threat. And that's where things get dicey fast. Yeah. So so, uh, the worst fires are where all these people show up. And so if you're being called on as a suburban firefighter to go into the wildland, it's probably pretty bad. 
It is. I mean, those are those are the ones that often catch the headline news. Like, let's think about the fire that happened in Marshall, Colorado, right around the first of this year in the wintertime, right outside of Denver there. That fire moved extremely fast and it was handled entirely by the, quote, suburban firefighting personnel who were responding to those homes, you know, hundreds, I think it's almost a thousand houses burned within the matter of just a few hours. And so... These environments are occurring all over the country. And, and it's not that New Mexico is a good example. That's a much more traditional wildland environment there. So firefighters are encountering those life-threatening situations, not just for themselves, but for the public that they're serving in so many different areas now. So, Kate, I would imagine that regardless of where they come from, if you find yourself out there in the wildland fighting a fire, you got to be in pretty good shape. It's, it's strenuous work. It's in the heat of the summer, probably, in the heat of a fire. Uh, with plenty of you know bulky protective gear, you have to be able to move quickly when necessary either to get to the fire or get away from the fire. Does that just come with the territory or are there, how do these folks keep themselves in condition? Is it sort of voluntary or are there standards? First off, there's a set of standards. I mean, you, you just, it's not like there's a height weight standard that you have to adhere to, but there is a presumption of physical ability. A lot of attention is paid to heat conditioning as you go into the summer months. So, for example, when I was a fire captain, you know, working on a fire engine in a hot part of central California, you know, we started heat conditioning fairly early in the summer and we'd go out, you know, in the hour right before lunch at 11 or we'd delay lunch and go out at 12. And we would hike in full gear up steep slopes in the heat of the day. And, you know, I mean, it would just sweat pouring off of you, red face. But over time, you get to the point where, you know, doing that in 100 degrees seems fine. You can do that. And we'd recite our safety orders and fire line orders while we hiked. And it was training and heat conditioning. That's a really important thing. You cannot leave. And we teach that you can't drive around in an air-conditioned fire engine and then jump out into a 100-degree condition. You have to just keep yourself warm throughout the day and not super chill your fire station and super chill your fire engine. So how did you get into firefighting in general? What attracted you to it? You know, it was almost by accident. I was backpacking in Yosemite with my brother as a senior in high school. I went to Half Moon Bay High School in California. We camped next to a couple of smoke jumpers and we just sat around the campfire. You know, I I was 18. My brother was 17. We talked to these smoke jumpers and and they just said, hey, it's a great summer job. You got to try this because I was interested. I did a lot of backpacking and I loved the outdoors. And so... I'm like, sure, that's a good summer job. I'm going to college next year. I'll try for that. And I started uh, in the late June of 1977 and went fairly soon. I think by the middle of July, we were in a big fire siege for the state. There were fires all over California that year. We were in a drought in 1977. And I ended up on one of the big fires of the time. It's a tiny fire by today's standards. It was a big fire by those standards. It was 75,000 acres. It was called the Marble Code Fire in the Los Padres National Forest outside of Big Sur. So Tassajara Canyon, Carmel, Big Sur was where the fire was occurring. And I was one of the, there were very, very few women at the time. I think we had a fire camp of 800 people and I was like the one woman firefighter in that camp. Not unlike some of your backgrounds, Sandra, probably the experiences you've had. But at any rate, the point was, I accidentally stumbled into it. I went to the Marble Cone Fire and 
we rode in a strike team of engines out to the fire line. So imagine the sun is setting over the Pacific. It's a massive fire out there. It's a, a line almost a mile long of fire engines threading their way up the mountainside in the twilight and massive flames on the hill behind us. And it's like, oh, this is so for me. I'm doing this. <laughs> you just knew it, right? This is what I want to be doing. So I went ahead and went to college, but I stayed working as a seasonal and finished college and worked my way up. And I felt it after that first experience. Just because of a, a conversation around a campsite. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. Hey, it's amazing where life takes us. Yeah. And my two sons have chosen to go into the fire service. So, you know, now it's kind of a family thing, I guess. Well, I, I would imagine that there's, you know, sort of a many layered set of risks in the firefighting business, uh, beginning at the sort of strategic level all the way down to the tactical. So let's start at the sort of high level, uh, the various perspectives of the various stakeholders who, who actually have an interest in how, in a macro sense, the firefighting business works. You know, some people don't want you to fight fires at all. Other people want you to fight every single fire, you know, tooth and nail. And you've been involved in that a, a bit later in your career. Uh, so give us a sense for where some of those tensions lie. Yeah, this is going to be the sticky, wicked problem that we grapple with for the next 20 or 30 years as climate change forces this recognition that, you know, our current policy of suppress all fires has been proven to have a negative consequence to it in the long term environmentally. Everybody pretty much agrees on that. What we have also done, though, is put people in those places and they're not going to go away very soon. The crux of that issue is there's almost no way to protect communities adequately without continuing a really robust suppression policy. The fires are burning with the intensity and the frequency and the threat we're just going to have to massively deploy fire suppression resources to protect communities and homes. The consequence of that is going to be continued environmental impacts that we cannot escape from. And that is the buildup of fuels and the slow decline of forest health. And a lot of people are putting emphasis on natural fire management, like lightning-caused fires in remote areas, letting those burn under low conditions, not the highest, most hazardous conditions, or prescribed fires like the ones that they had started in New Mexico but then escaped because unexpected winds came up. There's a very fine needle that must be threaded. If we want to optimize for environment and community protection, we're going to have to have burned landscapes and fire suppression at the same time, it's an extremely complex challenge to meet. And the most complex part of it is, and we're seeing this play out in New Mexico right now, people are unwilling to accept community loss as a consequence. When it comes down to the choice of prescribed fires or burnt homes, people will always say, I'm not willing to take that risk. And so it's theoretical when we're talking about it legislatively, but when it gets to communities and they feel like they're threatened, they want the firefighters there. Wow, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. It's hugely complex. But even as we record this, there's a host of fires burning in the West, like over 6,700 wildland firefighters assigned to fight them. So you mentioned earlier you were on a big fire at the time, which is now a small fire. So does it seem like we're experiencing more and more wildfires every year? And 
why. I think you know you mentioned a little bit about policies that fail, but also there's still a finite number of people available to fight the firefighters. So that's probably a big impact on the workforce too. Yeah. Capital W workforce is a big conversation policy-wise right now. So, you know, what we're discovering, absolutely, Sandra, to answer the first part of your question, yes, unequivocally, the frequency, size, and severity of fires is going up. Now, that's partly climate change. It is partly just the fact that we find ourselves in a Western mega drought. You know, whether or not that's absolute climate change or it's just exacerbated by climate change, we'd be in a drought anyway. But so climate change is a component. The cycle of drought and precipitation in the West is a component because we're in a dry cycle, undoubtedly. But people want to push this off on climate change. It is also because we are still building in these environments. It's the fastest growing residential landscape use out there. I mean, we're building residential single family homes in wildland settings today. The problem is still getting bigger because we're still putting people in places where we know these fires are going to exacerbate and burn and threaten them in the decades ahead. I mean, the new houses are still going up. So we're continuing to not recognize some of the root causes of the issue, which is people in burnable landscapes. It's funny that you say that because I lived in Hurricane Alley for a long time, and it's the same thing where there's a lot of building happening in areas where you know there's a natural disaster or natural weather pattern that's completely going to put all of that at risk, but we do it anyway. Or people building next to fighter bases and wondering why there's noise. Yeah, it's the same thing. (laughs) The real estate agents sell them on weekends. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The human way is until you're impacted sufficient number of times, you're willing to endure a certain amount of threat, risk, or pain. And like, I pay attention to this in the flood scenarios. I'm not saying this is an academic perspective, but in my casual research, what FEMA is finding that about the third time you're flooded out, people lose their desire to remain in the community. And so, you know, I, I have a talk that I give on what the 2030s, 40s and 50s are likely to look like, and people will depopulate these areas eventually. Duncan is made for everyone with the determination, the drive, and the guts to do something new or who wants to push their boundaries. It's the fuel for every mission, challenging pursuit or adventure. Whether you're embarking on a new journey or whether you're wrapping up your adventure, you know there'll be a Duncan waiting for you. And if it's speed you're after, order ahead and it'll be ready when you get there. It's simple. In, out, and on your way. So, Kate, let's... um, descend from the strategic level all the way down to the tactical level. Tell us about the sort of cycle of a wildland fire and the, you know how the teams respond, how that works, how they're detected, and how we respond. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example, a California example in a typical outside of a community on a bad fire day. Let's just take the city of Auburn up there, is northeast of Sacramento, mid-foothills area in the Sierra. And On a bad fire day will be, you know, probably in a red flag day where, you know, the National Weather Service has published a warning of red flag. That means that winds and humidities are expected to be at critical levels, usually out of the north or northeast part of California. We're probably talking, not necessarily talking about high temperatures, but often in the summer are. Let's just assume that we're talking about 90 degrees outside. The winds are starting to pick up. 
they're blown at 10 miles an hour, but we think they're going to increase to 30 to 40 miles an hour by the next day. We get an afternoon fire, you know, vehicle fire on the I-80. It sets off a wildland fire. And immediately there's going to be a joint dispatch of all the available fire engines and probably hand crews and aircraft in that area. So on a red flag day, we're going to send probably 10 fire engines and an air attack and at least two air tankers and a couple of hand crews and one or two bulldozers right away as soon as that fire report comes in. The tones will go off and all of those resources will start going in. Then they're going to get there and that fire is going to be already blowing away. They can't contain it. They know that they're going to be in for a large fire spread. So immediately the incident commander is going to set up somewhere in a vehicle, a separate vehicle. And uh, a few of the fire engines are going to start trying to anchor the fire. They'll do an assessment of where the structures are and where the likely, the most significant life threat, if there is one, where that's going to be. And the fire engines will deploy to the life threat fairly quickly while the air tankers try to slow the fire down in that vicinity. And the airplanes will then start laying down fire retardant between where the fire is burning and the homes while the fire engines go to that particular area and try to make sure that people are starting to clear out of the way while that happens. And the bulldozers are roll off their trucks and start trying to cut fire line if they can. That's the beginning stage of a large fire. Wow. The incident commander is going to make a, an assessment of how big this fire is likely to be. So he or she may think in their minds, I think I can pick this up by tomorrow morning. Or they're going to think this one's likely to go like this one. It's headed into rugged terrain. As soon as it gets past the structures, it's off and going. So I'm going to focus on structure protection and I'm going to order a massive amount of resources. And those resources started to roll. And here's where when I was telling you in the beginning, they come from different buckets. Now, this is the city of Auburn, right? We're right at the right at the edge of the city limits. So there's city firefighters. There's downtown Auburn city firefighters that are responding to this. There's Cal Fire, you know, wildland fire engines that are responding. By the time that's, that big order goes out, the city of Sacramento, the Yuba County firefighters, I mean, all of those firefighters geographically were pulling from the closest area and starting to feed resources into that fire. And that's why they're coming from all these different areas and different backgrounds. I can only imagine now way down at the tactical level, the kind of risks that these firefighters are taking when they're actually on the line, uh, you know, burns, respiratory hazards, heat related issues you talked about earlier, physical injuries, and even heart attacks, uh, because it's such a strenuous environment. I wanted to ask you about how you go about mitigating all of those risks. You know, so let's start with your equipment. What, what's the average firefighter out there lugging around out there in the, in the back country? First off, they're dressed uh, usually in either all cotton clothing, under underclothing, so T-shirts, underwear, you know, so that when they, if they do get burned, it doesn't stick to their skin. Uh, so no polys. And then their outer layers are Nobex. So a specially treated fabric. I'm sure you may use a similar fabric in the astronaut world or military world around fires. Yep. Yep. There's day-to-day uniforms, are Nomex, and the yellow uh, firefighting suits that they wear, which are really like a heavy, like a heavy fabric. It's not lightweight, but it's not like canvas either. They wear the pants and the jackets for that. Then they have a, you know, a, a helmet um, with a suspension system. They have a Nomex uh, shroud that comes around. Oftentimes they may have a Nomex hood that they wear that just keeps just their eyes exposed. 
No airway protection in particular at this point in time. They're usually just breathing through their nostrils in whatever environment they're in. High gauntlet gloves and high top eight inch boots with steel shafts, et cetera. So that's really what, as a person, you're wearing a Nomex outfit. It makes you hotter, so it traps your body heat. So we do have to heat condition. Once the flame is removed, it will not burn if flame is removed. So if you're in a compromised environment, your pack gear, you're usually carrying a substantial amount of water. You're carrying some personal gear in your pack. You're certainly carrying a fire shelter and some tools with you in your pack. So packs will weigh anywhere between 20 and 30 pounds, depending on how much water you're carrying on your back. And a lot of fire engine firefighters aren't carrying a lot of hand tools. They're really working with the hose and the water systems on the fire engine. But, but they're also multi-purpose. They can put down the fire hoses and grab tools and head off without water. You know, it's funny. We had to wear cotton clothes on space station for the same reason. If there was a fire, you know, wouldn't melt to our skin. And my personal experience with Nomax is it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. So completely not helpful. <laughs> Yeah. And even though it doesn't burn, it does char pretty well. Yeah. I can yeah. tell you from experience. It does. It does. Yeah. So, you know, kudos to the company that can come out with some kind of self-cooling fabric someday, you know, that <laughs> transfer ambient humidity into an evaporative surface on the inside of the coat. Yeah, that, that's gold right there. But now how, when you're out there in the, you, you talked about the command and control and the communication, but, you know, there's always the risk the fire is going to do something completely unexpected. I imagine that happens quite a bit, actually. How do you handle, a, you know, abort or escape criteria or even actually deal with animals that are trying to get away as well? It seems like that whole in-the-moment situation can be really dynamic. It is super dynamic. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis in a, in a younger firefighter's training and an awareness all the time that fire can turn instantly from a manageable environment in front of you to an unmanageable one. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of training that goes into just grass fires where the flames are just a few feet high one moment and then can be eight feet high the next when the wind hits the wrong direction. So in terms of teaching firefighters how to approach a fire from in the black, on the burn side of the fire is one of the, the key fundamental training things that we tell them. You're, you try to never be in the green, in the unburned area with a fire moving towards you. You always try to find an entry point so that you're following the fire from the backside of it, from the place where it's burned from. That gives you some added safety. That's not always possible. And with the way the fires are burning more severely, like I don't know if you recall the story that hit the national news about the fire tornado in Redding back in, I think it was 2017. There is unprecedented fire behavior that's occurring that is creating length of flame and movement of flame that's so rapid that it, it is surprising people. So the, the risk on the ground is greater than it has ever been. And this is truly taking a toll on people. It's one thing to walk into an environment you know, in your, your military background, Sandy, it's, it's one thing to walk into an environment where you think you have a good battle plan, you've got the resources, and you know you've got the support, the air support behind you. You know, you've got a good fighting chance. It's another to walk into a, we don't know what the hell we're getting into environment. You know, the psychological toll of that is more profound. And that's what we're discovering with our firefighters today. I, I see it with 
you know, with my, my own family and firefighters that I'm close to, the repetitive exposure to a worsening environment, you can't expect what you were trained to isn't necessarily what you're facing. Each year, it just seems to get worse and weirder and harder. And that's taken a toll. Yeah, that resonates with what a lot of our our, our wonderful soldiers and Marines experienced on the ground in, in places like Afghanistan, where you don't know when you're going to walk into a, a bunch of improvised explosive devices. We've already done an episode on somebody who did that or an ambush or something like that. And it really sets you on edge. And so do you have any issues with you know, PTSD and that sort of thing? I would imagine you do with some some of the folks who've been in some more difficult conditions. Yeah. So I want to make a confession here. So the short answer is absolutely. And I've had to dig deep in my own, kind of my own presumptions that I made, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when I started out, when it was like, I grew up in the era when, you know, quit your whining, suck it up, get on with it. You know, that was my environment. And that is still often the way we deal with things. But I've had to move from there's just whiners to it's a real issue. I mean, PTSD is an actual issue. I experienced it myself at the Cedar Fire in San Diego and the impact of all of the devastation, the loss of life of one of our firefighters on the line and what I saw the community go through just affected me at a level that I couldn't get away from psychologically very easily. And while it wasn't profound, I did seek treatment and resolved it. But I see other firefighters going through much worse than that. I mean, like I said, they're out there for weeks at a time, repeatedly being deployed to large fires for lengthy periods of time, not able to get home, not able to rest. And I want to go back to the smoke environment that they're operating in. Like they're not on assisted breathing. They're breathing difficult environment toxins for weeks at a time. It's it's a very real problem and certainly diagnosed PTSD illnesses and suicide rates are way up in the wildland fire community. Well, that's unfortunate. And I would imagine, you know, you're out there, like you said, for weeks at a time. It's not the life of luxury, you know, heading back to a nice hotel for a shower uh, at the end of the day. Let me just say, it's it's not fun. You're living out there. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, it's exciting and it's probably rewarding, but it's not in the midst of it a heck of a lot of fun. That's That's incredible. It sounds like close calls are, are not necessarily, you know, a brush with the fire, but it's just simply the exposure to the constant devastation and the, the stressful environment that can cause a lot of problems for people. Yeah, I, I think the PTSD and, and uh, suicide issues have a lot to do with the grind of it. And there's a, certainly, this is more on the federal side right now. The U.S. Forest Service is having trouble filling all of its positions this year. There's a lot of congressional discussion and action through the Infrastructure Act to raise the pay. They're still basically at a minimum wage level of pay. And most people are just saying, look, it's not worth it. What used to be a rewarding, outdoor-oriented, sometimes exciting, sometimes physically demanding, but generally the camaraderie, the experience of it, you got more positive than negatives. And it was an enjoyable career, even as a seasonal firefighter. That is not the case for so many people now. Yeah, this sounds like the same journey we've been on as a military, where society is changing, generations are changing, the environment is changing. And it's been a lot of 
interesting work, you know, adjusting to these new sort of facts on the ground. And I'm just wondering, does the community have formal leadership training for people who are now in a position of responsibility, who all the different aspects of leadership, including recognizing when people are in trouble, but everything else that goes along with it, do you have that kind of training? Well, it's growing. So most departments, and and once again, because of there's a variation in where these firefighters come from, there's a variation in the systems and services that each of them have access to. So the federal wild firefighting uh, folks may have a different set of leadership discussions than the downtown city of Sacramento firefighters may. But Almost every department now is acknowledging the impact of the wildland component on its members, and they are building programs for recognizing, getting them into services, preventative treatments, everything from, you know, yoga and just general good mental health practices to classes, like you're saying, for leadership to recognize signs and symptoms and organizational cultural shifts that we could make. You know, how do you encourage open communication and vulnerable conversations in a profession that typically doesn't encourage those kinds of things. Yeah. Welcome to my world. I totally understand. Yeah, I totally get that. From fighter pilots to base jumpers to neurosurgeons. Or, you know, the rest of us nine to five hustlers. Everyone needs a bold morning jumpstart or a robust afternoon pick-me-up from a slow, steep Dunkin' cold brew. Whether looking straight down the face of a thousand-foot cliff or staring wide-eyed into a baffling computer spreadsheet, we all need the same thing. So whatever your pursuit, start with a Dunkin' cold brew. One of the things that we did have done reasonably well as a military, but it wasn't a natural act and it took a long time, was uh, what we call joint operations, where we coordinate uh, air operations and operations on the ground. I've got a good friend who owns the company 10 Tanker. There are other people out there who who, who do this, you know, airdrops. How has that uh, evolved over time and how do you coordinate uh, with the people on the ground. I would imagine if you're on the ground, you don't necessarily want to get dumped on unless you're actually in the fire, <laughs> then you want to get dumped on. But how do, you, how do you coordinate that and how's it evolved over time? I don't know if we talked about this previously, but I spent several years as an air attack officer. And so in the firefighting vernacular, that's called an air tactical group supervisor, but the Cal Fire shorthand is just air attack. And my particular aircraft platform had two during two different periods. But the most fun one was the OV-10 Bronco that came out of, uh, you know, marine reconnaissance use in Vietnam. So with the fire, um, the way it would work is like, remember when I said you'd get 10 fire engines and two air tankers and an air attack dispatched to that Auburn fire we were simulating a few minutes ago. So the air attack will lift off from an air base, usually with one or two air tankers in tow coming with them. We're talking on the way into the fire. There's a very structured airspace requirement for at three miles from the incident location. From an aviation standpoint, we basically control the airspace in a three-mile radius around the incident. And aircraft check in and out. From an, uh, You're basically functioning as an air traffic controller as an air attack. So you're keeping your eyes on the ground. You're understanding where the fire is. You're generally watching where the troops are, but your job is to control the airspace, deconflict any issues in the airspace, and positively affirm aircraft, whether it's rotor wing or fixed wing, into a fire. So 
that umbrella of airspace coordination is existing over a fire. And they are talking amongst themselves. And when air tankers drop down into a fire, they check in with air attack. They get cleared. They are told you're approved for drop. They come around. They do a circle around it. They announce tanker on final. And from an air attack perspective, you have to have visual certainty. You have to have visual eyes on that air tanker when they go in for their drop. And you have confirmed that there are no personnel below. You announce it to the ground and you're watching uh, the air tank make the drop. They make it at 150 feet above ground. Wow. I would imagine that there's probably some new technology coming along. Is there, you know, machine learning trying to predict which way a fire is going to go or the best way to attack a fire? Or are we still kind of on the edges of that? We have passed the edges and are entering that realm. I would say that the the academic research and uh, civil space for this is exploding like wildfire, you know, to use the the metaphor. (laughs) I mean, there are dozens, if not hundreds of companies around the world working on these kinds of questions. But I'm going to stand back and I'm going to say, surprisingly, there is yet no reliable way to know where a fire is located from above. We cannot tell you with certainty where a fire is every moment of its occurrence yet. Those technologies are not yet fully in place. So do you guys use unmanned aerial vehicles to help with some of that? Yeah. Usually there's ground deployment of, uh, you know, drone UAV use on individual fires. On some large fires, the Global Hawk has gotten involved and has transmitted uh, Intel products off the Global Hawk. And I think uh, there's a couple of other, you know, companies that are running the civilian versions of those. So the unmans are in use, the fixed wing. There's a whole stack. I mean, helicopters that have infrared cameras mounted on underneath them to aircraft that are flying specific missions for certain types of remote sensing and certainly satellite systems. It's not like there are none. There are lots of systems out there, but there's no ubiquitous system that is serving that up constantly to everyone. You know, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted Sandra as a partner uh, in this podcast was because I believe that half the people in this world who take risk are women, right? And of course, she's had plenty of it. I would imagine being one of the first women. Well, if you count childbirth, perhaps more. <laughs> there you go. Okay, I'll, I grant you that. Uh, I'd imagine uh, that being one of the first women in this uh, profession, and you mentioned being one out of 300 earlier on when we were talking, had its own interesting challenges. Uh, and now you've risen pretty much to the top of your profession. How has that journey been for you? I would say it has been uh, a growth experience. So the first summer I worked as a firefighter, I spent a fair amount of time in tears behind the cookhouse in the evenings. Like I said, it was an environment where vulnerability and sharing your feelings was not a rewarded experience. So I learned how to have, you know, what we call grit, determination, and fortitude fairly early. I was 18 years old. Frankly, It shocked me how mean men were to each other. Like, that was the big thing I had to learn. Like, men are kind of mean to each other. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) Girls can be pretty mean to each other, too. That's true. (laughs) That's true. But I had to, at 18, I had to learn how to adapt to a male-oriented culture pretty quickly. Yeah. And then I got it. It's like, okay, you know, there's just different rules. Like, there's just different ways you communicate. And I... I began to not take it quite so personal. I took it because it wasn't me as a 
as a young woman there, it was just, that's just kind of how it operates. Like those are the rules for everybody. And while there was some, you know, discrimination about being a woman and certainly I had to prove myself um, in a lot of ways, like so many early women do, I think in my 30s and 40s, I started to develop, a, I don't know, kind of a respect and admiration for what that particular culture did. Like, I get it. And, and here's one of my side beliefs that I've developed out of this. There are not many places for young men to go in our world and find their way into manhood. The fire service is one of those places. It happens there. It happens all the time. I imagine the military is much the same. And there are precious few opportunities for young men to find their way. So I don't really begrudge that culture. I think it has value. Now there's ways to make it, to tone it down at times. So I've worked my way through the fire service. And I think if you talk to a lot of women who succeed in male-oriented professions, a lot of them have a similar story. If you can make it through the first years and find your footing, you know, if you can survive those first few years of, of figuring it out, you probably develop a respect and a camaraderie with those others. And it seems to fade a little bit. You find your footing and your respect for one another. I'd suggest that it goes the other way, too. If you had walked aboard an aircraft carrier in the 70s or 80s, like, like I was serving, it was a completely different place than an aircraft carrier today. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have women on board and we just treat each other differently uh, with a little more respect and a little less callousness. And, and uh, you know, it's just a, it really is a different feeling. So I think there's been some benefits going the other way, I would say for sure. Yeah, I, I've noted both of those. One, you have to get used to a different culture. And two, women are a civilizing influence on the teams that they are on. I saw that, it was very interesting. It's almost instinctively. That doesn't mean the culture goes away, but it definitely softens a little bit. You're trying to say men behave better when women are around? Is that is that? I, I, that's not what I said. <laughs> that's not what I said. I might have implied it, but but um, there you go. Well, because I have no, no official hat that I'm wearing today, I, I I'm right on board with those things. And what I have found personally as I went through that change, it ended up that everyone appreciated that shift. The men liked that environment too. You know, when given permission to be a little bit more human with one another <laughs> and vulnerable with one another, they kind of like it. You know, like nobody wants to go too far. Like we don't want whiters, we don't want crybabies, but being able to just talk about real stuff in a way that wasn't competitive, people like that. Well, I imagine at the end of the day, it's a lot like the environment I was in where it was at the end, less about whether you are male or female and more about in the stress of the environment, in the heat of the moment, can you deliver and be relied on? And do you have good judgment? And can your, your colleagues count on you to show up? You know, that really, that's what it comes down to. So, Kate, you know, getting close to the end here, firefighting is really a dangerous and complex occupation. You've made that very clear today. And you've been doing it for a while. What keeps you going? And what are you doing at this point in your career? Well, I mean, let's let's be honest. I'm I'm 63. I haven't been on the line for 20 years. Well, almost 20 years, you know, 15 years. So, because I I worked in you know a management rank. You know, not many fire chiefs are quote on the line in those same environments. But nonetheless, you're responsible for those things. And why I keep doing it is well, first off, I have a profound love of the environment and Earth, and I'm moved by the climate change problems in front of us. So there is a bigger picture and I just, I happen to 
have acquired expertise that's needed today. I mean, I still recognize that it's a needed, my perspective and voice is still a needed addition. And I don't say that with hubris. I just say that I still feel that I make a contribution that's important. And I look at my four-month-old grandson and think, you know, I can't hang it up. I got to find time to make contributions because I'm doing it for them. You know, as as we wrap up, do you have any advice for people who might be interested in getting into this risky profession? I absolutely do. I mean, I, I have advice for, you know, the policymakers, which, you know, if any of them happen to listen to this, which is we are going to have to invest in the salary benefits and, and schedule structure that make it a more livable profession for those folks that, that do endure those conditions, that there is compensation that has to occur. The other is for the firefighters themselves is, you know, to every woman out there who wonders if she could, she probably can. I want to encourage that. We need more women in the fire service of every different style. And for anyone, you know, man or woman, boy or girl who's interested in this profession, it is still a fantastic way to go through life. I mean, you're contributing so much. And the friendships that you make, the camaraderie that you experience, your sense of purpose and doing a valuable thing with your career, not many professions offer that these days. And uh, it's a great lifestyle. I'll share a story real quick as we wrap up. When when we were um, in East Texas searching for the Columbia piece parts as they fell across the field. There were a lot of wildfire fighters who came, I mean, hundreds who came and camped there, stayed there for a month and helped us walk the line and try and find all of the evidence that we needed to figure out what happened to Columbia. And I was so impressed with that community and their dedication and their high spirit. It really left an indelible impression on me. And, and I really, to this day, am thankful that they were there. So it's a, I think it's a wonderful community from the, I, the, you know, the little lens that I had. I'm sorry for that. I'm glad you had that experience mitigating. Okay. You, uh, unfortunately, we could, we could talk for another hour because this is fascinating. From the very beginning of, of putting together this podcast, we wanted to have a wildland firefighter and you know, somebody with experience in that. And this has been a terrific discussion. So thanks for your long career and what you've been doing to, uh, help keep our country safe in that regard. And uh, we wish the best for your children who are in this business as well, and that they, that they be safe and effective. And once again, thanks for entertaining our listeners with a really fascinating discussion today. We really appreciate it. This is all my pleasure. I, I hope your listeners enjoy it and get something out of it. And thank you for, you know, for doing what you're doing, bringing stuff to people and telling them stories. That was Wildland Firefighter Kate Dargan Marquis. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Many thanks to our sponsor, Duncan. Duncan fuels the people who take on every challenge headfirst. And we know the right kind of fuel that they need, an ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode. And be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.